Okay. Welcome to the APCA Vestibular SIG uh, monthly podcast. My name is Ethan Hood, and this uh, podcast is going to be on BPPV variants. Today we have a wonderful guest speaker. We have uh, Dr. Jana Humensky, who is a physical therapist, and she is a professor at uh, Midwestern University. Thank you for having. Thank you for coming today, Janet. Now, Janet, could you give us a little background on your experience, please? Um, sure. Um, I'm a uh, professor of physical therapy at Midwestern University. Um, I received my Ph.D. from Northwestern University's Institute for Neuroscience from the Department of Neurobiology and Physiology. Um, my Ph.D. is in ocular motor control. Um, I have received NIH funding investigating strategies to reduce dizziness in older adults, um, and currently, my research interests are prevention of uh, recurrence of BPPV, um, evaluation and treatment of atypical BPPV, and of central adaptation of the vestibular system. Great, great. So can you explain to us what exactly BPPV is? Uh, BPPV is a mechanical disorder of the inner ear, um, and it's caused by abnormal stimulation of one or more of the three semicircular canals. Um, and initially, it was reported that 87% um, of BPPV was due to posterior canal involvement. But more recent literature is suggesting that um, uh, it's more like 41 to 65% of BPPV involves the posterior canal. 20% uh, involves uh, multi-canal BPPV. Um, as high as 21 to 33% involves the lateral canal. And it's been reported recently as high as 17% of um, BPPV is anterior canal. Wow. So when you're evaluating somebody, you know, you need to try to determine which canal is involved. Okay. Is there a specific demographic that is usually affected? Um, usually <coughs> you, you tend to see uh, women um, having more involvement than men. The ratio is 2 to 1. Um, the incident of BPPV increases with each decade of life. Um, and the peak incident occurs around the sixth, seventh decade of life. Okay. Are there, are there certain diagnoses that are associated with BPV? Um, there, if you have a history of uh, migraines, you're four times more likely to have BPPV. Um, if you have osteoporosis, there is an association with BPPV, uh, but nobody has ever seen a direct link. Okay. Um, if you have um, uh, Thyroiditis, um, there is an association, but again, there is no direct correlation. Okay, and there's association with head injury as well, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, now in your practice, what is the most common form of BPPV that you see? Um, the most common cause of BPPV in my practice is unknown, and okay. greater than 50% is unknown. Um, and uh, I. The majority of my patients that I see have posterior canal BPPV, but I see a lot of atypical BPPV just because I work in the Chicago area, and if patients aren't getting better, I get a lot of referrals from other PTs. Okay. So as, as far as the, the signs and, and symptoms that you see with the patients, what, what do you usually see? Um, well, in terms of signs and symptoms, um, uh, usually <coughs> when a patient comes um, um, in, um, if you look at their history, um, usually they complain of getting dizzy if they look up, and a lot of times that's referred to as top-shelf syndrome. Um, they'll complain of dizziness when they get out of bed if they move their head quickly 
um, when they roll over in bed. And it's critical that you ask them um, towards which direction do they get dizzy. And a lot of times they're not able to tell you and you have to kind of figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, they'll complain of getting dizzy if they bend. Um, and if they tell you that they get dizzy when they're reading the newspaper in the morning, when they're eating breakfast, mm -hmm. um, that usually indicates that they have anterior canal involvement. And usually if you have vertical canal involvement, they're not going to complain of dizziness when they're up and walking. But if they complain of dizziness when they're walking, and particularly when they're turning their head um, to check for traffic when they're mm -hmm. crossing the street, or when they're driving and they're checking their mirrors, they complain of dizziness. That's usually a sign of lateral canal involvement. Okay. So as far as the textbook history that you actually see, it's just generally a short-term duration uh, vertigo that you correct. see with possible, if, depending on their age, they might complain of imbalance as well, correct? Correct. It's usually um, they complain of brief episodes of vertigo, usually lasting less than a minute. They might complain of a swimming sensation in between changes in position of the head, and that's just telling you how severe they are. Or they might complain of a lightheadedness. Um, but usually it's a, a brief episode of vertigo. Okay. All right. Now, as, as far as the, the uh, specific tests that you would do um, to diagnose someone with BBV, what, what is the, the gold standard test out there, or is there one? Yes, there is. Um, according to the clinical practice guidelines of the American Academy of Otolaryngology and the practice parameters by the American Academy of Neurology that were put out in 2008, um, for a diagnosis of BPPV, um, uh, the diagnosis is based on the history and the findings on positional testing. And the gold standard for positional testing is the Dixell Pike maneuver. Okay. Um, so the Dixell Pike <coughs> test is sensitive for um, detecting BPPV in the vertical canals, and you may or may not detect BPPV in the lateral canals. And if you suspect lateral canal involvement, then you need to do a supine roll test, and you need to do some variant of positional testing in the pitch plane or forward and backwards in sitting to try to lateralize which canal is involved. Okay, interesting. Now, prior we, we, we discussed a little bit about um, whether or not to classify in the canalothiasis or kipolithiasis um, in terms of the different variants of, of BPPV. Um, can you explain that, that when you see someone with uh, BPPV, what exactly you're looking at and what, you, what determines you to make the, the official first treatment that you would do? Um, when I look at a patient, to me the most important thing is to identify which canal is involved. Um, so I want to look at the direction of the nystagmuses during the Dixell-Pike test mm -hmm. and possibly during the supine roll test and the forward roll test. Um, so I want to make sure that they're not on any medication that is going to suppress the nystagmus. Mm -hmm. So if they're on Valium or if they're on Meclizine, um, that will suppress the nystagmus and you may not see it. Or if um, you work in a clinic that doesn't use goggles, um, they may use visual. They may visually fixate and use smooth pursuits to suppress the nystagmus, and you may not see anything. So you need to use goggles. You need to look at what medications the person is on, and you may have to request that the person be off of the medications in order to effectively um, evaluate them. Um, and uh, when it comes to determining if it's cupulolithiasis or canalithiasis, um, I'm really not that concerned about it because um, aside from the lateral canal, it doesn't really modify um, what I do relative to treatment. And 
you know, the mechanisms in terms of cupulosiasis and canalosiasis um, were proposed based on what they found in postmortem temporal bones and what they observed during surgery. And then what they did is um, there were uh, uh, researchers who um, came up with mathematical models that incorporated fluid dynamics to try to see if they could model um, cupulolithiasis and canalithiasis. And what they found was they could. Um, and so with cupulolithiasis, um, because the debris is stuck to the cupula, usually there is no latency of onset to the nystagmus. Um, it usually builds up gradually over time and peaks at about 20 seconds. Um, and uh, usually it's of a longer duration. And um, if you have a given weight of otoconium, um, the amplitude of the nystagmus will be a third or it will be dampened if it's on the cupula um, as opposed to if it's in the long arm of the canal. Hmm. So in theory, if you saw no latency of onset and you saw low amplitude and long duration, in theory it would be cupulolithiasis. Okay. With canalithiasis, you may or may not see a latency of onset. If the debris is in the ampulla, the amount of time that it takes for the debris to transverse the ampulla and go into the long arm of the canal um, will create your latency of onset. If the debris is in the long arm of the canal, when you're in the process of dropping the head back into the Dixal Pike, you'll see um, a uh, onset of an astagmus. You might not ever even get into the full position of the Dixal Pike. You know mm -hmm. you're going to put the person into that position. Um, and if you have, what they found is that if you have small particles for a given weight, you're going to have longer latencies and um, a longer duration of response than if you have a single particle of the same total mass, mm -hmm. um, where it will have a shorter latency and it will be a very brief burst of nystagmus. Um, and so if you look at this, if you have small particles that are in the long arm of the canal, um, you may have no latency of onset, and it may last for a long duration. Okay. If it's stuck on the cupula, you may have no latency of onset, and it could be long duration. So you can't really say this is cupulothiasis or this is canalothiasis. But the other thing that's of interest is if you have debris within the long arm of the canal, mm -hmm. it'll take 25 seconds for it to transverse 90 degrees of the canal. Um, and if the otoconium is in constant contact with the wall, it won't create enough drag for you to end up seeing nystagmus, even though the debris is within the canal. Interesting. Now, if you're going to treat, so let's not break in the cupulothiasis or canalithiasis. If we're going to treat posterior canal PPPV, what, in, in your uh, expertise, what is the typical treatment that you do then? Um, if you uh, look at the literature, uh, we did a systematic review <coughs> that was published in 2010 in PTJ. Um, and if you look at um, the literature, um, the short-term outcome for the canal three positioning procedure and the laboratory maneuver is the same. It's roughly 80%. And the canal three positioning procedure, um, the uh, findings are based on randomized controlled trials, mm -hmm. and the laboratory maneuver is based on quasi-randomized um, controlled trials. Um, but still, uh, if you look at them, the outcome is the same. And if you um, look at the canal three positioning procedure. If you're in the United States, we feel more comfortable using um, the CRP. So that will be our, usually most clinicians will use that as their first choice. Mm -hmm. If you're in Europe, 
um, or your European train, their first choice will be the liberatory maneuver, and their outcomes will be the same. So my feeling is whatever you're comfortable with, if you're comfortable with the liberatory maneuver, if you're comfortable with the canal's repositioning procedure, that should be the procedure that you try first. And then if that doesn't work, you can use a combination of the two to try to optimize your outcomes. Okay. So so when you see someone, how many times would you actually treat them with the, the CRP or the liberatory maneuver? Um, usually if I see them, I will do um, three cycles of either the CRP or the liberatory maneuver mm -hmm. um, minimum. Um, and my experience has been is usually the first time um, I do uh, the maneuver, I'll get maybe 80% of the particles will clear. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second time I would do the maneuver, if there's any debris, um, I I'll clear it out. Mm -hmm. And then if there are silent particles that are moving along the wall of the long arm of the canal, I'll do a third maneuver in order to try to clear it out. Um, I never follow up at the same session with the Dixell Pike test. Because if you follow up with the Dixell Pike test, what you're going to be doing is moving the rocks 90 degrees around the ring, mm -hmm. but not moving them the full 360 degrees that is needed to clear. I got gotcha. you. So my concern would be that I would dump something out. So I always do a minimum of three, um, and depending on how the session is going, I may go more or less. But essentially you're doing the Dixell Pike maneuver as you're doing that CRP anyway, correct? Correct. Is that the, correct. Okay. Now, it, if you see someone and you're treating them and you're doing the CRP on them and you notice that the nystag after doing the, the CRP one time on the second time, if their nystagmus and their symptoms are exactly the same as the first time, would you change your, your treatment in any way? Would you go to the liberatory maneuver then? Definitely. Okay. Um, the canal three positioning procedure uses gravity to move the rocks around the um, canal. And the liberatory maneuver uses inertia. So if I was doing the canal three positioning procedure and I wasn't seeing any change, um, if I knew the person and I knew that they weren't sensitive in terms of I might get an autonomic response and might get, get vomiting, um, I would be more aggressive and I would switch my technique to the liberatory maneuver. Okay. Um, and I would do a minimum of two cycles of the liberatory maneuver because I think the first time you do a liberatory maneuver on a patient, they have to kind of learn what it is that you want them to do. Mm -hmm. And then the second time, you can get um, a, a fast enough speed of under 1.5 seconds of flipping them from one side to the other side. Mm -hmm. It's high enough to get the rocks to move around the ring to try to clear it out. Okay. Now, are you going to offer them a self-treatment as well? The CRP is traditionally you can do a self-treatment at home. Yes. Do you offer the laboratory as a self-treatment at home as well? Again, it depends on the patient. Depends on the patient. Um, if it's the first time I've seen them and I'm not sure how sensitive they're going to be, I will not give them home exercise programs, and um, I'll send them home, and I'll, um, I still use acti um, activity restrictions. I'll have them sleep slightly elevated and sleep on their back and on their uninvolved side. Um, and I'll, um, I'll follow up with what type of a response they have. Okay. Um, and 10% of people they will feel worse following the treatment for up to 24 hours. And I want to find out if this is going to be one of those people. If they do well and they can follow directions when they come back in, then what I would do is I would do a combination of um, treatment in the clinic and then self-treatment at home. Okay. Um, and the literature shows that 
um, the best outcomes are when you do a combination of treatment in the clinic and treatment at home. Okay. Now, as far as anterior canal BPPV, what exactly are you going to see on exam? Um, if you have anterior canal BPPV, um, you know, you have to remember that the initial ampullary segment is almost vertical. It's at 70 degrees from the horizontal. So you can evoke um, nystagmus in both the head right and the head left position of the Dixell pike. So in 50% of your patients, you're going to see a pure downbeating nystagmus in both the head right and the head left position, mm -hmm. and you're not going to be able to determine which ear is involved. In the other 50%, um, you'll see a downbeating nystagmus with a very small torsion, and the torsion will be um, towards the ear that's involved. Mm -hmm. But you can see the torsion in both the head right and the head left position, again, because of the orientation of that initial ampullary segment. Okay. So how are you going to determine which side, if you if 50% of the population um, has downbeating nystagmus and you can't really, it's hard to determine which side actually has BPPV? Um, then you hedge. Um, okay. And what I would do is I would treat them with one of the maneuvers that is designed to treat the anterior canal. And what I would do is I would do just pure neck extension. And okay. we first described this um, Kalminski and Hain in 2007. Mm -hmm. um, and what you do is it's very simple. You just take them in long sitting on a table and drop their head back into a minimum of 60 degrees of extension. Mm -hmm. And you maintain that position for about two minutes. And then you sit them back up and you repeat it three times. Um, and a lot of times um, the, uh, the debris will clear um, and you don't have to worry about trying to determine which side is involved. If you know the side that's involved based on the direction of the torsion, mm -hmm. you're in the head right and head po left position of the Dixell Pike, mm -hmm. or you tried neck extension, it didn't work, and based on their history, you suspect that it's one ear and not the other ear, then what I would do is a forward 360-degree rotation around the anterior canal, which is very similar to the canal three positioning procedure mm -hmm. for the posterior canal, but it's different in that it's done on, with the person um, prone on elbows, um, and they lean over the table and rotate their head 360 degrees and then end up sitting up, right? Okay. And it was first described by Feldin, Feldin and Bronstein in 2008. Okay. When they're prone on their elbows, how much flexion is their neck in? During that maneuver. Um, well, what you do is you start prone on elbows, mm -hmm. and if I'm treating, let's say, the left side, what I would do is rotate my head 45 degrees to the right and drop my um, on down onto my stomach with my head looking under the table, and I always okay. jokingly tell them to look for gum. Um, and then you turn your head 90 degrees so that you're in 45 degrees rotations to the left, mm -hmm. and then you roll over, maintaining um, the orientation of the canal relative to gravity mm -hmm. um, so that you end up into basically a left Dixell Pike position, and then from that position you end up sitting up, and you repeat it three times. Three, three times and what you're right. doing is you're rolling the <coughs> debris 360 degrees around the ring. Okay. Now, what's the treatment efficacy of that maneuver? Pardon? What's the treatment efficacy for that maneuver? Um, I cannot tell you the treatment efficacy, but I can tell you it works. <laughs> 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 but I don't have the stats on it. <laughs> it works well, right? Anecdotally, it works well. I like okay. that. Now, is, is there any danger to, uh, with someone with anterior canal BPPV, treating them with a CRP? Or is it just not going to be as effective as, as doing the it's other maneuver? Danger. It's, it's, a, it's effectiveness. So if you 
have an older person and you're concerned about putting them in these positions, mm-hmm. positions which you should be, um, you always need to clear the neck and you always need to clear the vertebral artery before you do any maneuvers okay. um, for the posterior canal, the anterior canal, or the lateral canal. But you can, if I had to select um, a treatment that was designed for the posterior canal and apply it to the anterior canal, I would use the modified Libertoy maneuver. Okay. Um, and, um, uh, and again, um, I haven't found it to be as effective. I found the other two to be effective, but if it's an older person, they can tolerate it with their neck. Okay. Now, with the, with the other maneuvers, would you offer that as a self-treatment as well for the anterior canal? Um, uh, I would um, do the neck extension. Mm-hmm. Um, they can support their neck on the back of the of bed, mm-hmm. um, and so it ends up being very effective. Um, if they had somebody who came in with them, um, that could guide them through the 360, I would have them do the 360 forward roll. Okay. Okay. Now, on to horizontal canal BPPV. What are you going to see with horizontal canal BPPV? With horizontal canal BPPV, it has to be bidirectional changing. So um, when you do the supine roll test and you bring the person down on their back, when their head is turned to the right and then their head is turned towards the left, you should see a reversal in direction. So um, if when the head is turned to the right, it's geotrophic, it's beating towards the floor, um, it's right beating. When you turn their head towards the left, it should reverse direction and it should become left beating and still remain geotrophic. Mm -hmm. Um, It also has to reverse direction in the pitch plane or it's not coming from the lateral canal. So when the person is sitting upright, um, if they... um, Let's say they have a spontaneous, a pseudo-spontaneous left beating and stagnant. When they bring their head forward, so they drop it 60 degrees forward, that should reverse direction and should be coming a right beating and stagnant. If you don't see that reversal, it's not lateral canal BPPV. Okay. Now, what what if you see ageotropic nystagmus in the the roll test? Um, you could see. I, I just uh, use geotrophic as the example. Okay. You could also see apogeotrophic BPPV. Um, and what would happen is when you were on your back with your head turned to the right, mm-hmm. it would beat away from um, the earth, mm-hmm. so it would be left beating. And when you turned your head towards the left, again, it would beat away from the earth, so it would be right beating. And the same thing would happen when the person was sitting up, that when um, they were sitting upright, again, if they had a pseudo-spontaneous nystagmus and it was left beating, when they brought the head forward, um, it would reverse and become right beating. Okay. Now, what's the difference between ageotropic and geotropic nystagmus in terms of the type of uh, BPPV that it is? Uh, um, That's a really good question. Uh, With lateral canal BPPV, it's very important that you determine whether or not the debris is on the side of the long arm of the canal or whether or not it's on the side towards the utricle near the vestibule. Um, And if the debris is in the long arm, you will see geotrophic BPPV, and you treat it with a log roll, a 360-degree uh, uh, log roll, although um, we found in the clinic with experience that it's best to go with a 270 roll instead of a 360 roll in okay. order to avoid um, uh, dumping back into the canal. That means you just, when you're prone, you just come back up the sitting then, correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. <clears throat> the apogeotrophic BPPV, um, if it's apogeotrophic, 
BPPV. It could be in the initial segment, um, ancillary segment of the canal, or it could be attached to the cupula. And if it's in the initial ancillary segment, you can convert it from apogeotrophic to geotrophic BPPV, where you just shift it from the ancillary segment into the long arm of the canal. If it's um, on the side towards the utricle, you can't canal convert it. So if you have apogeotrophic BPPV, um, the new maneuver that we've been using that I really like um, is called the cupulola three-positioning maneuver that was described by Kim, Joe, Chung, Bion, and Left in 2011. And what it does is it's very similar to the log roll, but it treats both the long arm side and it treats the side towards the utricle. And then when you're done with the maneuver, you end up having the person sleep on their uninvolved side, which is opposite of what the um, Italians recommend with their forced prolonged positioning for apogeotropic BPPV. Their reported success rate is 97%. Wow. And with the patients that we have tried in the clinic, we have gotten 100% with it. Can you describe so, the maneuver, how you go through it exactly? Um, yes, I can. Um, uh, if you are, um, if the person is, uh, let's say that um, they have BPPV and it's involving the right side, um, and um, you determined that by when they were sitting up, you saw a pseudospontaneous nystagmus towards the right, um, or when you did the supine roll test, it was the side of the least intense nystagmus. Mm -hmm. So if you determine that the right ear is involved, um, you put the person on, you know, on a mat table, put them in long sitting, mm -hmm. have them lay straight down on their back. Um, you maintain that position. They keep each position for three minutes. Um, okay. With me, that's not realistic, so I tend to keep them in each position for a minute. So you bring them straight back um, just to try to um, get the debris to settle within the canal. Is there a certain speed you bring them back, or is it just basically just kind of lying down quickly? Whatever the person can tolerate. Whatever the person can tolerate, okay. So nice. So um, <clears throat> speed doesn't matter as, as, as much as final position. Does. Okay. So as long as you can comfortably get them down, you're okay. Then what they do is they have them, if I'm treating the right side, you roll onto the right side and then turn the head 45 degrees down towards the floor. And you have them um, maintain that position. Um, they reported three minutes, but I do it for 30. Mm -hmm. And you vibrate over the mastoid of the involved ear, and you can use a handheld shower massager, or some people have been using their cell phones on vibration. <laughs> um, then what you do is you maintain um, you continue laying on your right side, and you turn your head uh, 45 degrees towards the left, so you're in neutral rotation. You mm -hmm. maintain that position. Then you roll back onto your back. Mm -hmm. Then you maintain that position. Then you roll over onto the left side um, with, again, neutral rotation, and you put the vibrator behind the right mastoid. Then you roll over onto your stomach, and then from that position, without extending the neck, you push up. And, um, again, each position is maintained for a minute, um, and uh, that's my variation of it. Um, and then I would do three cycles of it. And like I said, um, we've been doing it now, and I've had a 100% success rate with it. Would you give it as a self-treatment, or is that something you only do in the clinic? No, it's something that you could do as a self-treatment. Okay. Okay, great. Now, here, here's the question, and I always get this from, from patients when I'm treating BPPV. What is the reoccurrence rate for BPPV? 
uh, the reoccurrence rate is high. Um, and so uh, within a year, the recurrence rate is 25%, and for two years, it's 50%. So they're going to come back. Okay. Um, and um, actually, uh, was funded by NIH to see whether or not we could reduce the recurrence rates by doing um, Brandt Deroff exercises because um, that was the exercise that I was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. And then when I found Brandt Deroff exercises weren't effective, I then tried um, self administered canal three positioning procedures. Mm -hmm. And what we found was the recurrence rate was the same if they did daily exercises to clean out the ear as if they didn't. Um, so what we do is we recommend positioning where they sleep on the uninvolved side. Um, if they're stomach sleepers, I try to get them to sleep on their back so they don't end up developing anterior canal BPPV. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I try to teach them what to look for. Um, and then um, if they have been doing self-treatment um, uh, exercises um, and they're good at it, I try to, to instruct them in what they need to look for to evaluate themselves and to be begin self-treatment. And if there is no change, that then they need to come in and see us. Okay. You mentioned Brandt-Darroff exercises. And, you know, if you look in the literature traditionally, that was one of the, the mainstays for, for treating uh, BPPV. Um, what, what's the, the current research and literature show on the Brandt-Darroff exercises? The current, well, you have to realize that Brandt-Darroff exercises are not particle repositioning exercises. They're habituation exercises. So um, when you're dropping the person down on their side, you're only moving the rocks 90 degrees through the long arm of the canal. Um, and it's been modeled that you need to do a 360-degree roll. So in essence, what you're doing is when you lay the person down, you're just letting the rocks roll 90 degrees, and when they sit back up, they drop back to where they came from. Now, they might work because you're breaking up the particles. But my experience has been is um, if patients do Brandt-Darroff exercises, that they can break up the particles and they can end up um, having canal conversions into the lateral or into the anterior canal. So in order to prevent canal conversion and in order to optimize my outcomes, um, the uh, current literature is showing that the short-term efficacy of the Brandt-Darroff exercises in a week is only 24% versus the short-term efficacy of the self-canal three-positioning procedure is 95%. So I would rather give somebody the self-canal three-positioning procedure because I know my outcome is going to be better at the end of the week, and I have control in terms of where the debris is going, or better control. Okay. Now, are, are there any new treatments on the horizon for BPPV? I am not aware of any. Um, they, you know, now there are is the uh, Omni rotator, which is the 360-degree rotator. Mm -hmm. um, where uh, if you have somebody who you just can't get rid of the BPPV, that's an option. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there are gadgets on the market that you fix to the person's head um, that has um, usually a tube that's usually filled with water. It's on a baseball um, cap usually, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and you can see the bead move to try mm -hmm. to make sure that the person gets their head in the right position. But my experience has been, you know, our outcomes are so good with the procedures that are done in the clinic and with the home maneuvers that the more high-tech gadgets at this point really aren't, ne aren't necessary for everybody. Okay. Now, as far as, far as the Omniax, can it do any other maneuver besides just the CRP? 
can it can it do all the maneuvers we talked about before? It can do, you know, it can go. They can treat anterior. They can treat okay. posterior with it. Um, and I'm not sure, but I think they can do lateral with it. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Well, Janet, thank you very much for lending your expertise today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.